You know, Messianic Judaism, for the most part, you know, uh, Rabbi Silverman introduced our organization as a publishing ministry. We do publish a great deal of resources. We feel that the written word is the most powerful and enduring message that it will be here for the next generation to be challenged by or to be considered. Um, so we've put our efforts in how we teach and how we share our mission um, in uh, written format because we want to transform this world for the sake of Messiah and we feel that the greatest vehicle to do that is to put forward challenging um, books and publications and discipleship programs and commentaries and all the things that we do. So this last week, we had the honor um, to teach alongside uh, Rabbi Russ Resnick, who is the executive director of the UMJC, and he mentioned how Messianic Judaism is really not even on the page, so to speak. He calls us a movement in the margins, um, off to the side. And I thought about his comment, and it's true. Right now, when you consider Christianity, greater Christianity, or greater Judaism, really, Messianic Judaism isn't on the page. You know, Hashem has been working uh, quietly and slowly through us, and, you know, we've gone through different cycles of regeneration and regrowth, and certainly our modern-day Messianic movement was rebirthed out of the 60s and 70s. Men of God that came to know Yeshua in the Jesus movement, Jews, and they like began to live out their Yeshua faith in the context of Judaism. And these men standing up, um, presenting this message uh, within the context of Jewish understanding and Jewish interpretation, they began to draw the nations. They were a light that the nations began to see and say, wait a minute, um, this makes sense. Our faith is uh, fundamentally Jewish, and maybe this has some value for us in regards to our life and our perspective. So in many ways, Messianic Judaism is currently not on the page. That's a true statement. But as a publisher, and as a writer, and as a designer, I also know the value of the margins. I mean, think about a written page. You know, if the, if the page isn't designed correctly, if there's not proper white space given between the sentences or on the side, the page, the page won't even be read. People would just look at it and they'll be instantly confused and they wouldn't even know where to start. So I think that's actually a very good statement that we are in the margins because I think that we can help people read the page properly. I think we can help Judaism read the page properly. I think we can help Christianity read the pages of the Bible properly. And I think that's one of the greatest values that Messianic Judaism presents is an interpretation of religious life, Jewish life, from a fundamentally um, Yeshua-centered perspective, um, individuals that are both Jews and Gentiles that are devout and passionate for the word of God, the desire to serve him and to please him. So I think Messianic Judaism has a lot to offer, and I think over the forthcoming years, um, we will see our movement continue to grow and continue to mature and continue to strengthen. You know, whenever I come into a community like this, I, I come in very cautiously. I value the local community greatly. I have a high respect for the local leader. The last thing I would ever want to do is to come into a community and to cause any type of dispute or confusion. I have a high respect for the local community and the local leader. 
So I hope that my time uh, with you uh, for the Shabbaton will strengthen this community, will enhance this community. Now, when I come into a community like this, I expect on some level to be challenged, and through that challenge or the things that I hear or the things that I see, I want, to help, I want those to help shape me and form me and uh, make me a better disciple of, of the Messiah and a more you know, proper representation of the God of Israel. But at the same time, I come into communities like this with, a, with my own challenge, and I try to push the community forward. So it's like this give and take, but I just want to say that I deeply, deeply respect um, and affirm the local community. Um, the things that we shared last night, the things that we'll be sharing throughout the day, these are perspectives that I'm bringing for us all to consider and for us all to be challenged by and to modify. Last night, we started out by talking about how Hashem um, blessed the seventh day, how God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. So God himself um, sanctified and set apart the seventh day, the Shabbat, as holy, that God made it holy. And I started with a challenge to say, if God, who we are to be imitators of, sanctified and set apart this day and made it holy, and we are to be imitators of God, then how do we make this day holy? How do we treat this day different than any other day of the week? How do we allow the holiness that is intrinsically connected with this time and this space to infuse our lives and then to reflect that holiness back to God? Uh, and this morning in uh, Rabbi uh, Silverman's opening prayer, he said, may, may, we, may, we bring, uh, may we be pleasing unto you, God. There's a, a phrase both in the uh, morning liturgy as well as in the afternoon liturgy from uh, from the, uh, the prayer sections in the Siddur, and it says, may, may you be pleased with our rest. May you be pleased with our ceasing. As God ceased on the seventh day, may he be pleased with our ceasing. So this morning I want to I'm kind of set the stage. Now I had some of these notes passed out. Do we have those? Can we pass those out? All right, so if you have your workbook, let's turn to page six. I'm gonna be working through some of those points. If you don't have a workbook, um, just raise your hand and she'll hand you some notes that reflect that same page. But I want to start, um, and I want to kind of set the stage for the remaining uh, part of our, our teaching throughout the day by looking at um, the John 3.16 of the Messianic Jewish movement. Um, John 3.16 is probably the most popular verse in Christianity. Um, you know, everybody memorizes it, for God so loved the world. Um, what would you think that the John 3.16 verse of the Messianic Jewish movement would be? Any ideas? Jeremiah, that's a good, that's a good one. Back here in the back. Oh, you are raising your hand for the notes. All right, I'll stop asking questions. Here's, <laughs> here's the verse that I think is one of the key verses that I hear all the time in the Messianic Jewish movement, and it comes from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And I want to use this text that we're all probably very familiar with this morning, and I want to use this text to help possibly bring a different reflection upon how we approach this text. See, I, I believe that everyone... Um, that is in Messiah, the Jewish people, as well as members of the nations, Gentiles, I believe that everyone should be looking to the Torah as guidance. I value the Torah. Um, 
I, I, I believe that the Torah is the standard that God puts before us as his people. But if we don't approach the Torah with maturity and with the right rationale, we could oftentimes go off a path very quickly. So I want to look at this text and help us see this text possibly from a different angle. So let's turn to Matthew 5, 17. I do think that this text kind of poses for many people kind of that aha moment of, wait a minute, Christ did not do away with the Torah. And it's an awakening for many to the reality that the Torah plays in our life as believers. It says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I'm just gonna kind of comment through this briefly, but my main point will be in verse 20, which says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in verse 17, Yeshua tells us plainly, he says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law, the Torah, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I think that he's telling us there that he came to give the proper interpretation on how to live it out. So our Torah observance, our Torah observance fundamentally has to be filtered through the teachings of Yeshua to be properly lived out, to be properly kept. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So this tells me that not one aspect of the Torah has been done away with. There are certain aspects of the Torah that cannot be kept right now because there is no temple. Jerusalem isn't fully restored. So those aren't done away with. They're just unable to be functioning right now. So not one aspect of the Torah has been done away with through the work of the Messiah. Whoever, want, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I don't know what it means to be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but I sure would never want to be least in the kingdom of heaven. Um, that's my insight on that text. <laughs> but whoever keeps them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So I want to use this, and I want to use the Messiah's life as an example. Yeshua himself did not keep all of the commandments of God. He kept the commandments of God that applied to him as a Jewish male living in Jerusalem, and he kept those perfectly. This is the perspective that I want people to see, because I think oftentimes when they read this text, they say, wait a minute, the Torah has not been done away with, um, whoever, uh, teaches, whoever does not keep them and teaches others to do likewise will be least in the kingdom. Whoever keeps them and teaches others to do likewise will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Thus, I must keep all of the Torah. And they become very passionate in their Torah observance and they become very judgmental towards others that aren't keeping Torah the way they think they should be keeping Torah. But if we understand the, the, the simple fact that Yeshua himself did not keep all of the laws of Torah. He only kept perfectly the laws of the Torah that applied to him. 
He didn't keep the laws within the framework of the Torah that um, apply to women or to apply, the, apply to farmers or bankers or uh, priests or kings or any of those necessarily. He kept the commandments faithfully that applied to him and he kept them perfectly, which made him righteous. For I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Franz Dalich, a, um, a 19th century translator of the New Testament into Hebrew, he was attempting to kind of restore an early Hebraic uh, flavor to the words of the master. And he translates this word righteousness as tzedakah. For I say to you, unless your tzedakah surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And when we understand the word tzedakah in its context, it means your good deeds. Unless your good deeds exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this kind of changes a reflection on this text. Rather than just simply um, reading it to say, unless your righteousness, and then we all kind of just default automatically to the righteousness that we have in Messiah, this kind of puts it back on us a bit. It kind of uh, changes the narrative, so to speak. It says, unless your good deeds, unless your keeping of the commandments exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't believe that there's anything that we can do to gain our salvation, and I don't think there's anything that we can do to maintain our salvation, but I do think that we all need to have a sensitivity to the reality that in Messiah, in Christ, we are called to live holy and faithful lives, that we are to be people that are, uh, have a sense of, of what, what are my responsibilities, just like Yeshua kept his responsibilities of the Torah without flaw and perfectly, as a woman, as a man, as a Jew, as a Gentile, what are our responsibilities in regards to God's Torah? And I think those need to become like, like our measuring stick of, of how we live out our life of faith. You know, at the end of the service, at the end of the Torah service, there's a, uh, a tradition. It's uh, called Hagba'ah, and it's when uh, a person within the community receives a position of honor to come and to lift up the Torah scroll and to hold it before the community. This tradition is based out of Nehemiah uh, chapter 8, verse 5, where it says that Ezra opened the scroll in the front of the community. Um, so we lift up the Torah the Hagba'ah, we lift it up, and then everybody says, Vizot HaTorah, this is the Torah. Um, and we all look at the letters, that's what we're supposed to be doing, is when the Torah is lifted up, we look at the letters of the Torah, we consider the Torah right before it's, it's put back into its proper place. But I wanna use this, um, this, this tradition that we have within our communities, and certainly within this community, and I want to consider a few aspects of this process. First of all, the individual that is called to, uh, to lift up the scroll, that's a position of honor within this community. That's probably a well-established member within this community. So it's a position of honor. So Hashem, God, has given us all the reality and a sense of awareness of his Torah. 
You're here today because the Messiah has accomplished his task in your life of not only bringing you into relationship with God, but making you aware of the reality of the Torah in your life. You're here at this Messianic Jewish congregation because you want to understand uh, how do I live out my faith within the context that God's Torah has not been done away with. What does that look like? How does that reflect into my life? What does that mean? So I think since there's millions and millions and millions of other Christians that have equally as a a passion for God and a heart for God and read his scriptures daily, and they don't have that sense or they don't have that question of what does the Torah mean for me? It hasn't been done away with. That because you're here, that there's, there's something in God's spirit that he's called you and he's chosen you and he's given you a position of honor to lift up his Torah. And I think we need to understand that it's a place of honor that God has brought us all to this place in our life at this time and made us aware of his Torah. Now, when the gentleman lifts up the scroll itself, you know, he has to keep it, there's, he has to keep it kind of, uh, there's a, a tension required. He has to keep the scroll tight. And I think every one of us realize that when this reality of the Torah comes into our life, there's a tension that is now brought into our life. How do I live out God's commandments? How do I live out and be faithful? How do I constantly be moving forward? And, and, and that tension that is, exists within our life because our life was not formally developed around the Torah, but now we have this new awareness How do we manage relationships? How do we manage our interpretations of the text? How do we do all these things? The Torah brings tension, and we have to understand how to live out that tension. Uh, Thirdly, uh, the individual that's lifting up the Torah scroll, he has to be very careful in doing so. It's a fragile document. So I think as the Torah comes into our lives, we have to be very careful. It's fragile. Things can get out of balance very quickly. And rather than like being maintained, things can tear. The rabbis say that the entire intention of the Torah itself is peace. So the Torah should never bring strife into our life or into our relationships. So we have to be very careful. Um, the gentleman holding up the scrolls, uh, sometimes uh, as we get towards the beginning or the end of the cycle, one side is heavier than the other. So the gentleman holding up the scroll, he has to have balance. So we can draw from this and understand that when the Torah comes into our life, we have to have balance. We have to like approach it with reason. And we have to balance it out with our life and our family and our spouses and our children, how we live that out. And lastly, Possibly if you can think of any more little analogies, you can share with them later, but here's the last one that I have, and that is strength. That the Torah scroll itself is heavy, and it takes, it takes some strength to get it up in the air and hold it there long enough for people to see. So as the Torah has come into our lives, every one of us need to have the strength from heaven to be able to live it out, to be consistent to always be walking forward and never stepping back. 
It takes strength. The purpose of the individual lifting up the Torah is so that the community will look upon its words. So realize that as you go about your life and you are now having a public testimony of the Messiah being in your life, as well as you interpreting and understanding your faith from a Jewish perspective, as you have a testimony of Torah in your life, realize that the community is looking at you. And your actions and the things that you say and the things that you do, they either uh, bring people closer to God or they drive people further away because of our inherent problem with hypocrisy. I came to, um, to do this Shabbaton because our goal is to help, um, to help you and to help Messianic Judaism uh, continue in our development towards maturity. I think it's fair to say that um, our movement is still evolving and still developing and that's perfectly okay as well. One of my colleagues, Daniel Lancaster, um, gave me an analogy a few years ago. I just said, you know, it seems like we're always just struggling. It's always, I'm speaking organizationally, we're always struggling. We never really feel like we are getting ahead. We're always just keeping our head above the water. And he said, well, maybe that's exactly where Hashem wants us, is just with our head above the water, because that means that we'll continue to swim. I think that our Messianic Jewish movement is very much like that. I think we dream of the future. In fact, Russ Resnick, um, uh, this last week in our teachings, we were talk, our focus on our teachings was the centrality of God's unique relationship with the land of Israel. And he pulled out this brilliant uh, connection. He talked about Abraham, who had the promise of the land, you know, that God himself said, this is your land but we still see how Abraham approached the land. There's a difference between promise and possession. That Abraham approached the land and he bought the land that was promised to him by God. He didn't come in arrogant and just kind of take over the land. He came in quietly and just bought the land and purchased the land. So I think within Messianic Judaism, at times we see the promise that's out there ahead of us. We see the Messianic kingdom and we see our message and our role as being the uniting message between the nations and the people of Israel. And we see our understanding of Torah centered on Messiah, properly lived out as, as the, the, the message that repairs the world. But yet there's a difference between like the promise and the possession. So I came here to help us realize that we haven't really yet uh, possessed anything. And I challenged us last night by saying, yes, you might be um, keeping Sabbath or you might be Sabbath aware or you might have an understanding of, of the Sabbath as being the set-apart sanctified day, but the Sabbath is not just church on Sunday or church on Saturday. It's not just a moving of one day of worship to the next. The Sabbath is intended to be a 24-hour period of time of holiness, sanctity, set apart, um, ceasing and stopping and pausing, reflecting on God and reflecting on one another. So just because some of us may have the idea that the Sabbath hasn't been done away with doesn't mean that we've really possessed anything yet. 
We should always be trying to learn and enhance and beautify and bring more of God into that time and into our lives. We should approach the Sabbath with beauty and honor and something that we uh, have everything from the world like outside of that realm of time to just simply allow God to uh, preserve us and to help us grow. So I started out last night by expressing four dreams that I have for this. I'll repeat them briefly for this community and for the larger congregation. That the purpose of the Shabbaton is to, um, that family units would be preserved, strengthened, and equipped. Um, there's a, a saying by a author by the name of Marvin Wilson. He's a great uh, Christian author. And a few years ago, or, uh, he's elderly now, but in, uh, in one of his uh, writings a few years ago, he, made the, he, said, he, said if, <clears throat> he said if all the churches were just to disappear somehow, like the church buildings, the church structures, he said it w- Christianity would be devastated. It, would, it, it, it probably wouldn't even carry on. He said if every synagogue was destroyed, Judaism would carry on. And he said because Judaism... The point of worship and the point of learning and the point of connecting is primarily in the home, in the home, not in a physical building or structure. So we say here this saying that says, more than Israel has kept the Sabbath, the Shabbat has kept Israel. And I likened this to my personal life in saying, more than the Shabbat has, more than my family has kept Shabbat, Shabbat has kept my family. It has allowed me to be a father to my children. It has allowed me to be a husband to my wife. It has allowed us to stop as a family unit and put everything aside and to focus on one another, to have conversations, to, um, to rest in our relationship, to grow spiritually, to learn about God together, to sanctify that time. Number two, Messianic Judaism my hope is that it will flourish and continue to be a light set upon the hill. This is part of that possession idea that the whole world is waiting to sing the songs of Shabbat. Isaiah, uh, in six, Isaiah 66, he says, from one new moon to the next, from one Sabbath to the next, all humanity will come and bow and worship before him. The Messianic kingdom is a time in which all nations will go and learn from the God of Israel. The Messianic kingdom is an extended Shabbat, and every Shabbat that we experience in this life is a small glimpse of the rest that we will have in the Messianic age. The world needs our message. The world is distracted and destroyed because of its busyness. And Messianic Judaism represents a pause in time to say, come and cease and rest and sanctify this time as a family and as uh, with God. Thirdly, that Judaism would have one less objection as they witness those of Yeshua faith being devout and affirming of the Sabbath, something so central to Judaism, the Sabbath, and all of its various uh, regulations and requirements and all the different types of things that have been kind of created around it to preserve and to sanctify it. When we treat Sabbath haphazardly as a movement, when we treat Sabbath as just the alternative to Sunday worship, but really have no other reflection of what true Sabbath observance is like, 
then our testimony within the larger Jewish world continues to be diminished. So as, as, as we have an objective to bring the Messiah to the Jewish people, we need to realize that our actions and the way that we approach things that are so central to Jewish life have the ability to either build a barrier or to remove an objection. And then fourthly, we talked about how Messianic Gentiles that are drawn to Israel's light will find a place of rest and peace. As it is said, all humanity will call on your name and they will accept the yoke of your kingdom and you'll reign over them soon, forever and ever. I feel that, I feel that one of our most important testaments as Messianic Judaism is the reality of Gentiles within our midst. That the apostles, that's, I mean, Yeshua said to the apostles, one of the very last things he said, take this to Judea and Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all ends of the earth. That the nations were intended to be a part of us because the nations were intended to be a vehicle in which God's name would be known throughout the entire world. So I think it's proper that we find um, proper placement and fitting for the nations to be in our community, not as, not as just on the side, but rather as an integral part of what our public testimony is. So that's, the, that's my hopes for this Shabbaton, is that we accomplish those tasks and we can move forward in a mature and godly way. I want to speak briefly about the eight attributes of Messianic Judaism, things that I think that we need to be challenged by over the forthcoming years. There's, um, in Judaism, there's, um, you've all heard the term Baalei Tshuva, like uh, it means masters of repentance. A Baal Tshuva is an individual who is godless or secular or not religious, and then they become religious. Um, so these in um, Judaism are typically just referred to as BTs, BTs, Balei Tshuva, like master of repentance. And then there's another term in Judaism called FFBs. FFBs stands, from, uh, stands for frum, religious, frum from birth. <laughs> so Judaism today is either made up of BTs or FFBs. And I think that if you were to look at Messianic Judaism, I think that our movement primarily is a movement, and I'm speaking within this cycle, made up of BTs. So I'm thinking of you know, our current uh, rabbis, Rabbi Silverman, and let's just look at the leadership within the UMJC. These are men in their 60s and 70s. They came to faith um, in the 60s and 70s. They returned to God. Yeshua accomplished his task, and he brought them back to Jewish life and to Torah observance. They are BTs. Um, however, their children are FFBs. They were Messianic Jews from birth or from from birth. And we have some difficulties at this stage in our development of properly transitioning from BTs to FFBs because the concerns of BTs and the passions of BTs are a lot different than the concerns and the passions of FFBs. FFBs don't have anything to contrast their life from, whereas BTs, they understand 
what their life was like, and they were awakened to the realities of certain things. So for example, um, I used the text Matthew 5, 17 to open up with. This, for some, is an awakening moment when you realize that Jesus did not do away with the Torah. That's an awakening moment. And then all of a sudden, you that have been awakened now have something to contrast that against, which was your former understanding that he did do away with the Torah. So that gives you passion. It gives you a sense of mission and a sense of purpose to make people aware that Jesus did not do away with the Torah. But for our children that grew in the reality that Jesus did not do away with the Torah, what is their passion going to be? What is their what is their sense of contrast going to be? And as Messianic Judaism makes this transition, we have to be able to like help that next generation take what we have done or our elders have done and take it to the next level. So here are eight attributes that I think we need to consider. And these are all going to be kind of rooted out um, throughout the rest of the day. This uh, page that you have is just said is entitled Setting the Table, Welcome to the Shabbaton. This is, these are just kind of bullet points and ideas that will help us throughout the rest of the day. But number one is identity. Messianic Judaism needs to have a clear and crystallized perspective on who we are as a movement and the role that each should play as Jews and Gentiles who embrace Messianic Judaism. This is something that has been debated within our circles for a long, long, long time. But in order for us to properly move to that next stage, that next generation, this has to at some point become crystallized and we have to have a fundamental understanding of who we are as a movement and what is the mission that is ahead of us. And what roles do Jews and Gentiles who embrace Messianic Judaism play? I'll add to this by saying possibly a challenging statement, and that is I cannot see Messianic Judaism existing or flourishing without a model of distinction. That we have to recognize Jews in our midst, and we have to recognize Gentiles in our midst, and we have to both recognize the marvelous and magnificent work that God has done in our life. That Messianic Judaism must kind of get past this and not just have Gentiles come and be a part of us, but rather have Gentiles come and become a part of us because we desperately need them to fulfill who we are ultimately going to be, which is a kingdom picture of Jews and Gentiles worshiping the God of Israel. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3 gives this image, this picture that in the Messianic age, in the Messianic kingdom, that all nations are coming up to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, to learn his ways and to hear his Torah. Number two, authenticity. There's a, a website out there. I, it's, the mo, it's a very unfortunate website. It's, it's produced by anti-missionaries. Anti-missionaries are people that want to discredit Messianic Judaism. And there's a website that has been created that has video clips or audio clips of various messianic services or messianic things that basically makes us look foolish. And that's their intention, is to make us look like fools so other Jews won't want to be a part of us. So what's the solution to that? Stop doing foolish things. <laughs> that, that we need to have... We need to uh, have a sense that we are not just making things up. We're not wearing costumes, but we are part of something grand and something greater. 
And what we are doing and participating in is true, and it's biblical. So we need to be knowledgeable and intentional in our faith expression. So one of the things I'll talk about later on today is one of the ways that traditional Judaism has understood the Sabbath is through 39 different prohibitions. Now, these 39 prohibitions, they're deeply challenging. And our initial response is to say, oh, those are just made up by the rabbis. They don't really, they don't really matter. But I don't know if that's the right response. I'm not saying that we necessarily need to start implementing them all into our lives and those types of things, but I think we need to have a more intelligent response to them than just to discredit the messenger. Thirdly, we need to have a sense of stability. Holding, thing, holding on to things that are permanent and enduring and not being enticed by the distractions of the constantly shifting modern trends and values. We mentioned this last night about like the projection of the New York Times a thousand years from now. What will be on the front cover? The Shabbat lighting candle times. Do you think the Jewish people in a thousand years will still be saying the Shema? Do you think in a thousand years from now that we will still be singing the most popular contemporary messianic Jewish praise or messianic song or Christian praise song a thousand years from now, but we'll still be saying the Shema. So we need to have a sense of stability, holding on to things that are permanent, enduring, and not necessarily be distracted from things that are representative in our modern culture and world. Fourthly, morality. We need to be focused on learning and practicing godly living that goes beyond, above and beyond and reflects true integrity. I love this text out of Romans chapter 10 or 12 verse 10 that says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. Oftentimes within our Messianic Jewish circles, it's like people want to outdo one another in how Torah observant they are. They want to outdo one another in how much Hebrew they know. And that becomes the point of focus. But I can tell you that if our point of focus was to outdo one another in showing honor, we would be better reflectors of the Messiah and we would bring people into our communities. So we need to have a high sense of, of ethic and morality and musar. Fifth, we need to have intellectual honesty, a willingness to ask and engage with questions and to incorporate, incorporate new information. There's a difference between dogma and truth. Dogma is afraid of questions. Truth is not afraid of questions. In our world today, there is no way um, to slow down the snowball that is now rolling about the Jewishness of Jesus. It is something that is not going to go away within Judaism or in Christianity. It's there. Information has brought us to this place of understanding his fundamental Jewishness. This is good. This is new information, and we need to incorporate that new information rather than have dogma that demands that Jesus uh, was you know, blonde-haired and blue eyes. But this is difficult because most of our religious life and most of our theology is dogma rather than truth. And we need to understand that we're fighting for truth, not for the preservation of dogma. And this is what is so valuable about uh, the education that's taking place in Messianic Judaism. You know, the challenging ideas that are being forth, brought forth by some of our teachers and leaders, um, that they're challenging us to change perspectives, and that will help us mature and grow. But if we reject these 
new ideas and teachings that are being put forward or if we reject education in and of itself, we have no opportunity to continue to grow in truth. Number six, community. We need to foster a true sense of community, an environment where people feel supported, encouraged, strengthened, and these communities are based upon families. A community should be made up of a collection of quality, solid, godly families. Your home should be a place of learning and growth for your family, and then that family should come and connect to other families, but we have to develop a real and genuine sense of community. Number seven, beauty. Creating memories that touch people on a spiritual and emotional level. Giving us and our children an association of beauty and expression, our expressions towards God. So for example, um, I don't have a copy up here, but the Sabbath table book that we created. Um, A lot of what we do at Vine of David is we create uh, books and resources that are beyond our our, our ability. Uh, financially beyond our ability, and you know, just they, we we are always pushing the envelope to create beautiful and inspiring things. Because something beautiful and something that a lot of time and money has been put into, it says something to the next generation, which is that we are going to be here. Messianic Judaism has to move beyond like photocopied, spiral-bound type works to be able to communicate to that that FFB generation, that this is stable and strong and able to go to the next generation. Everything that we do in Messianic Judaism should be done with excellence and intention because we have to send a message that this is here and it's enduring and it's gonna thrive and it's gonna grow. So we have to do things with excellence and in beauty. And lastly, We have to have a clearly articulated sense of purpose that explains why Messianic Judaism is not made obsolete either by Christianity or Judaism, casting a grand sense of mission and importance. And I'll end on this point. I believe Messianic Judaism is the most important, fundamentally kingdom-focused message that is available in today's religious world. I believe that what our perspectives are can truly bring and help realize the Messianic age and the Messianic kingdom. One of my views of of Yeshua is that uh, he was the prophet of the destruction of the temple. I mean, think about this. Um, Let's say that, uh, let's say the economy is going to crash. Actually, it has recently, uh, several different times, but put that pain behind you. Um, but let's say there was a gentleman that came out and said, our economy is going to crash in 2009. And here are all the reasons why it's going to crash. And then in 2009, the economy crashes. And after it crashes on Fox News and CNN, we have all these pundits coming on, all these commentators coming on. And there, after the economy crashes, they're coming on and they're giving their opinions on why the economy crashed after it crashed. But who do you think has more credibility? The individual that forecasted it and gave all of the reasons why and even the time and then it happened? I think that we would have, like, we would want to hear more of his perspectives. 
So when we understand how central the temple is to Jerusalem and what it represents in terms of God's presence here on earth, and we see Yeshua prior to the destruction of the temple saying the temple is going to be destroyed because of your lack of mercy, your lack of love, that, re- that religion is not coming from the inside, but rather it's cleaned up on the outside, that God, des- that God desires a pure heart and kindness and love, and that was rejected. And then the temple was destroyed. And then Judaism, after the destruction of the temple and after you know, we're off in exile, Judaism reflects back on why we lost the temple. And you know the reasons why we lost the temple according to Judaism? Our lack of love for fellow man, our lack of mercy. So the very things that Yeshua identified prior to the destruction of the temple that caused it to be destroyed and exile to come were the reasons why we lost it and sent into exile. So I think in order to end that exile and to bring the repentance and to ultimately establish God's temple again and to bring his presence, we have to listen to the teachings of the prophet, of the Messiah, who prophesied the destruction of the temple, and not just listen to them, but return to them. So I think Judaism has to reconcile their understanding properly of Yeshua's teachings and message. And I think Christianity should as well. We have to defend the Torah. We have to be a people about tikkun olam, repairing the world. We have to defend Yeshua and his Jewishness. And we have to be kingdom-minded focused, kingdom-minded and focused. We have to realize that everything we do in Messianic Judaism should be a physical representation of the Messianic kingdom. In the Messianic kingdom, there will be no more war. There will be peace. So that means that we need to be at peace now. In the Messianic kingdom, there will be no more pain and hurting. So we need to be people that are striving to remove pain and hurt from other people's lives. In the Messianic kingdom, the people will be faithful to Torah. So we need to be faithful to Torah now because that's a representation of the kingdom. In the Messianic kingdom, God's feasts and God's Sabbath will be honored. So we need to do that now because that's a physical, visible representation of the kingdom. So as we consider this Shabbaton, the details of the Sabbath, My single goal is to help us to continue to learn the details and the backgrounds of what it means to honor God properly on his holy day. How can we enhance our lives and how can we bring him honor with our rest? So I look forward to being with you throughout the rest of the day as we work through these details and we'll certainly have time for discussion and question and answers. But I want to just um, thank Rabbi Silverman for having me here. And I pray that my time in your community will be a blessing and strengthen your community. God bless you all. Shabbat shalom.